before this time. Thank you, Kim and Pam. About our love for God. But honestly, what does a party have to do with a religious service? Honestly, which one would you prefer attending? Going to a party or going to church? Teenagers? Oftentimes in our lives, these two options seem to be exclusive options, especially if the party time is scheduled at the same time as the church service. One or the other. If your conscience would be influenced by the things of God, you might say, well, what would Jesus do? Parents, that's what you say to your children, right? What would Jesus do in this situation? Well, as we will see today, he did both. Would you open your Bibles to chapter 2 of the Gospel of John? What does a party have to do with a temple? Open to John chapter 2. As you're turning there, and by the way, if you have a, one of the pew Bibles, you may find this passage on page number 921. As you're turning there, for those of you who are, want to know what's coming up at Park Hills Baptist Church in terms of preaching schedule, we have a sermon card in the you know, chairs. You can find out what we do every Sunday. Today is chapter 2. Next week will be chapter 3. And then following chapter 4, then we'll take a break for two weeks and come back to the Gospel of John. But here's the word of the Lord for us this morning. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus, Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone jar, water jars, of the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, so they, will, so they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much drink. But you have saved the best till now. This was the first of his miraculous signs Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He 
He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who sold doves, he said, Get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. Then the Jews demanded of him, What miraculous signs can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scriptures and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now while in Jerusalem, at the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all men. He did not need man's testimony about man. For he knew what was in a man. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for us. Let's go to him in prayer and ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to us the meaning of the words of Jesus so that God's name would be glorified. Let's go so in prayer. Father, we ask now through the Holy Spirit that you would reveal to us the testimony about Christ so that your entire being Father God and Holy Spirit might be praised in our midst, in our congregation, and that your people would be edified. Father, we pray these things in the name of Christ, through the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, we are in our series in the Gospel of John, a gospel whose main purpose is to convince the readers that Jesus is the Son of God, and that by believing in his name, we might have life in his name. We looked so far to the first chapter which included a prologue and a gospel that in this introduction sort of gives us the, the, the themes of all the gospels. You read the first 18 verses of the gospel of John and you get a sense of what this whole gospel is about. But then in, in the rest of chapter 1, from verse 19 to the, chapter, to the end of chapter 1, we see a list of testimonies of who Jesus is and what people said about this Jesus. Now in chapter 2 we get to read about his first signs, which is reported in this gospel. Actually, in chapter 2, we see a first subsection of this gospel, a subsection that goes all the way to the end of chapter 4. Actually, if you, if you look on your sermon cards, the, what, today we talk about chapter 2, next week we talk about chapter 3, two weeks from today we'll talk about chapter 4. And even though the titles of the sermons are our next week, we'll talk about love rejected, and the, week, the following week, accepting the gift of God. There's something that ties these three chapters together very well. In chapter 2, we see Jesus giving a better party and a better temple. Then next week, we'll see Jesus actually requiring a better birth. And then in chapter 4, Jesus offers a better water, and then he promises a better worship. 
in these, four, in these three chapters, 2, 3, and 4, we see Jesus as he displays himself, who he is, through the signs that he makes and through the dialogue he has. He wants to say that he is bringing about a better life. And as we'll see here in chapter 2, it's a better wine, a better party, a better temple. What do these things have to do with each other? What does a party have to do with a temple? Well, we will see. Let's look at each of them in particular. A better party. Of all the four Gospels, John alone talks about this story, the story of Jesus changing water into wine. Um, this story has often been misunderstood. Some people use it to show that Jesus accepts social drinking. That's probably the only reason some of you know this story in the Bible. Others show that or see in the story that Jesus is a great provider. Things run out, go to Jesus. He multiplied bread. He turned water into wine. Jesus is the provider of our needs. Another way I've heard this sermon preached, and actually most times I've heard this sermon preached, was in the context of weddings. Invite Jesus to your wedding. He'll make your marriage great. Now, even though there might be some point to this, reality is that the purpose of this story is not to teach us how Jesus will make our marriages better, although he does. But that's not the point of this story. So what is this story about? Jesus shows up at a party. He's not anything close to the kind of monastic pictures of religious gurus in the Middle Ages. Jesus actually goes to a party. And when the run wine runs out, he's going to provide more. What kind of religious person is this Jesus? So let's look at this. Let's look at this story. The great thing about it is that it is the first time when Jesus makes a sign in this gospel. Now, if you remember a few weeks ago when we talked about the overview of this gospel, in chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, this gospel, the, the author says, there's many other signs that Jesus did that we could have told you about. But these are written so that you may know and believe that Jesus is a Christ, the Son of God. And by believing, you may have life in his name. And this is the first sign. Well, the question is, in what way is this first sign supposed to show us that Jesus is a Christ, the Son of God? That's the point of the story. That's the point of the miracle. Yes, it's a big surprise in this gospel that Jesus is, show, is showed up to a party. And he's indeed saving this party from total embarrassment. But what is Jesus doing here? A few cultural elements that we need to understand about weddings in ancient culture. First of all, unlike all cultures, where traditionally the bride's family provides for the wedding, in Jewish custom, it was the groom himself who was the provider. 
He's the one who is supposed to make sure that a wedding party has all the needs that they are going to consume. Second of all, in a culture where shame was a great social pressure, to run out of supplies at a wedding party was a dreadful embarrassment. I mean, that's just not the way you do it. So for Mary to come to Jesus and tell him that they ran out of wine, it was a signal that this party was going to take a nosedive. And this groom had just ruined his reputation in Cana. He is going to be the groom where the, ran, where the wine ran out. So Mary comes to Jesus and says, hey, there, there's some real need here. And Jesus responds to her, and, 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 and it's a, it seems a little standoffish, dear woman. Really, it says, woman, what do you have to do with me? The NIV makes it a little more nice. Dear woman, why do you involve me? But really, it's a, it's, a, it's a little bit of a, hey, what does this have to do with me? And then Jesus says, my time has not come. Literally, he's saying, my hour has not come. Now, that's a huge hint in the Gospel of John. In the Gospel of John, every time you see the word, my hour, or the hour, it's always referring to Jesus' crucifixion. So what does this have to do with the wedding? Jesus is speaking very cryptically here. We only know that the hour referred to Jesus' crucifixion after the crucifixion. So clearly, not, neither Mary nor the disciples, they had no clue what Jesus was talking about. My time has not come. What do you mean? Point is that something is happening in the story that is going to anticipate what Jesus is about to do. And he's not talking about changing the water into wine. Interestingly, even though Jesus says, why do you involve me, as if Jesus doesn't want to have anything to do with it, the next thing Mary says to the servants is, do whatever I'll tell you. Meaning that Jesus somehow decided, you know what, I'm going to do something about this party. And then at the end of it, we see that the disciples have seen his glory. Well, what glory are we talking about? First of all, to understand the, the issue what's happening here, we have to understand a few things about the Old Testament. In a few places in the Old Testament, the prophets describe the future messianic age as a time when all kinds of resources will be restored to Israel, including bountiful vineyards and much, much wine. Uh, we see this in Jeremiah 31, Hosea chapter 14, and Amos chapter 9. But in one specific place, we see the invitation to come to a party where the host has prepared the choicest of wines. In Isaiah chapter 25, the passage we read earlier in the, in the service, we actually see God talking about a time when he will restore Israel from his exile and he will bring back his people from the ends of the earth. And he describes himself as inviting all people to come to a party. And in that story, God himself is a host. And he's the one who's preparing the choicest of foods and the finest of wines. In the Old Testament, God 
foretold, prophesied that his messianic age will be described by this idea, this picture of a bountiful party with endless resources. Now, Jesus knew the prophetic word. Jesus knew what God had prophesied. Jesus knew the way God himself presented himself in the Old Testament. And in this situation, when he hears from Mary, they ran out of wine, he decides to do something about it. Not simply to show his power, but this was a great opportunity to show his identity and mission. In some way, this wedding party is going to anticipate the glory of the Messianic age, which will come when Jesus will be glorified on the cross. Even though the sign happens before the cross, the glory of this sign is an anticipation of the glory of the Messianic age. So in what way did the disciples see Jesus' glory in this sign? Again, don't think simply that Jesus is showing off his power. Signs in this gospel are designed to elicit not amazement at Jesus' power, but amazement as, and pointers to his identity. Something else is going on in the fact that Jesus chose to save this party from total embarrassment. You see, in the next chapter, and John is very, very deliberate in choosing this sign as the first sign of this gospel. You say, how do I know that? Because in the next chapter, in chapter 3, John the Baptist continues to bear witness about Jesus. And here's what he says in chapter 3, verse 27 to 29. To this, John, meaning the Baptist, replied, A person can receive only what he's given from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah but I am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and is now complete. John the Baptist identifies himself as a friend of the bridegroom and identifies Jesus as the bridegroom. Do you see that what John the Baptist is doing is that he, Jesus alone, is identified as the Messianic bridegroom. Thus he will supply all the wine that is needed for the Messianic banquet, but his hour has not come yet. Yet in this embarrassing situation, he graciously acts, helping out this unknown bridegroom. But this sign, again, is not about saving the identity of the unknown bridegroom from a tremendous social embarrassment. Instead, this sign is about revealing the identity of the true messianic bridegroom. So in starting to present Jesus' ministry through this miracle, John, in essence, is saying the messianic age is being anticipated by this wedding party. By the way, do you remember how John will conclude the book of Revelation? With another picture of a wedding. He's inviting readers to come to a wedding party so that the beginning of Jesus' ministry, John, this is the way John does it. The other Gospels do it differently, but John, the beginning of Jesus' ministry starts with Jesus at a wedding party. 
And the last writing John writes, the book of Revelation, the last picture we get is another wedding party. Folks, Jesus is the bridegroom. And he is inviting people to come to the banquet. He's the one who's going to supply the, the wines. He's the one who's going to supply all the needed resources to have a, a luxurious, unending party. Yes, I know it's hard for some of us to think of the Christian life as a party life. But the point that Jesus makes and John makes is that God is calling us back to himself. And when we are back restored to him in a community with him, our relationship with him will look like an eternal party. You don't have to give up the joys that you think God is taking away from you in order to follow him. God is calling you to some eternal joys that we cannot even comprehend how they will be. The Bible just tells us the finest of wines, the finest of food. The point is, friends, and Jesus is not only the groom inviting us to his party, the book of Revelation ends up telling us we are the bride. That's what makes it so beautiful. So when we think about Jesus beginning this gospel with this first sign, it's not about Jesus having power to turn water into wine. It's about Jesus identifying himself as the groom who takes charge to make sure that the wine and the party has enough supplies. Why? Because God in the Old Testament said he's the one who's inviting us to a resourceful, luxurious party. Friends, what does this mean for us? The call, the call to follow Christ has many facets. It calls us to believe in him, to pick up our cross and follow him, but we're called to participate in his wedding party. That's a joy we have. Christ is a groom and we are the bride. The world often puts its best at first. And then, as time progresses, people come to realize how shallow and disappointing its promises are. But with Christ, it's the other way around. Actually, what Christianity initially experiences is only a foretaste of something even greater. Even in our present Christian life, we're never promised a life free of trouble, a life free of problems, but we are promised that through it all, Christ will be with us, bringing even the most difficult circumstances, even in those situations, bringing reasons of hope, reasons of joy, so that instead of despair, our hearts can be filled with a sweet anticipation of that time when Christ will restore all things. Friends, just think for a moment of the times when some of us go through the moments of death, or a member of our family goes through, through being departed to be with the Lord. In the, in the bitter experiences of those moments, we proclaim and believe and sing the hope we have of seeing that person afresh. There's something better for us that's coming at the end. And in, in some way, the way Jesus handles this party is the way this, the, the, the headmaster comes to the groom and says, hey, why have you kept the best for last? Because typically the custom of the world is you bring first your best. You put on your best appearance. You put on the best stuff you have. 
But Christianity is the other way around. The best is kept for last. We do experience in small, a small version, small glimpses of the joys of being in a relation to Christ. Friends, what, what awaits for us in the future is way more better. Jesus is at a party. And he is transforming this party. He's saving it. People are going to have fun. But it's because of, not just because Jesus is bringing you wine. He's really telling us, listen, I'm the one who's going to make your party better. I'm keeping the best for last. Trust me. Now there's a dilemma. Not only is Jesus saving this party, but when the headmaster realizes that the best wine is brought second, not first, he's in essence accusing the groom for breaking another social norm. So in one sense, Jesus' solution causes another problem. It was not customary to keep the best for last when it comes to wines at parties. This is a problem that Jesus will face as he confronts Judaism. Because Jesus is saying, I am bringing the fulfillment of everything that this is about. And many of the Jews, when they saw that Jesus is bringing something better, they don't like it. They would rather stick with what they had. In a sense, in, in a symbolic way, this, part, this wedding party is anticipating not only the promise that Jesus makes, but also the frustration that others will have at Jesus. Actually, it's not accidental that the containers of water which Jesus used were designed to hold water for Jewish purification rites. In performing this sign by using these jars for Jewish purification, Jesus is taking symbols of Jewish rit ritualism rites and transforming them into the source of this bountiful, endless banquet. Jesus is transforming the use of Jewish symbols. And you'll say, and this is, this is a key for us, what's happening here at the end of this story is really transitioning to, the, to what happens in the temple. What does a party have to do with the temple? Jesus attends both. Well, as we will see, Jesus ends up addressing not just some stone jars and transforming their use. Jesus is going to speak about the use of the temple. So let's look at the second part of this text. Not just a better party, but a better temple. Unlike the previous event with a party, the story with a temple was given by all four Gospels. The only difference is that the other three Gospels put the story of Jesus cleansing the temple at the end, whereas John puts it at the beginning. Now, we don't know for sure. It's possible that there might have been two cleansings. We don't know. Nobody knows for sure. But here's some historic notes about what's, what happened. The rabbin, rabbinic resources tell us that it was about the 30s that the priests and the leadership of the temple have included some innovative methods to make the temple worship a little more conducive to its worshipers. We are told, and, and think for a second, worshipers come from all over Jerusalem. And not only do they have to travel once a year to Jerusalem, they had to bring animals with them. That made the journey even so much more difficult. So these Jewish leaders thought of a very ingenious idea. Why don't we just provide the, the, the animals here in Jerusalem? 
so that all worshipers have to do is just bring themselves. Don't bring the animals with them. Bring money. We'll have money exchangers. We'll make this worship experience very pleasant for them and convenient. And so that they don't have to cross town to go to the other side of Jerusalem, we'll bring it all here in the temple. So they get the animal, they pay for it, and then the next thing is they just go to the next room and slaughter it. Here's a sacrifice, very conducive, very easy, very convenient. Now, motivation was, was good. Well, you know, you can't flaw them for the motivation. The only problem is when Jesus comes to the temple and sees this reality, he realizes, oh my goodness, this temple that's supposed to be a house of, of prayer actually more looks like a house of commerce. Busy. People actually being even greedy to make sure that they get the right change back. Make sure that they have a profit, otherwise it's not worth for them to do all this stuff. So, no wonder that when Jesus comes in verse 16, he says, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? Yes, in their desire to make the temple more convenient, they actually changed the temple's function from being a house of worship, house of prayer for all nations. It has become a busy place predominated by economic transactions. I wonder, friends, does that come close to sometimes how our churches look like? Churches sometimes can become centers for all kinds of activities. Except for true worship. Do we think of the reality that when we gather, we gather to worship God? Yes, we see each other. Yes, we do activities. We want to do that. But ultimately, it is about our transaction, our worship of God. Now, you can guess what the Jewish leaders have thought of Jesus wiping out and cleaning out the temple. They did not like it at all. So, they come to Jesus and ask him, by what authority are you doing this? By what authority are you cleaning the temple? By what authority are you accusing us of doing these things? Now, if they were good and faithful and honest Jewish leaders and teachers of the law, they should have known a prophecy. One of the most significant of the minor prophets in the Old Testament is this prophet Zechariah. And the last sentence of the last verse of the last chapter of the book of Zechariah has something very interesting to say. God promises, and I'm going to read the ESV because I think the ESV captures more carefully, precisely the wording of that verse. But here's what the prophet Zechariah said. And there shall be no longer a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. The day when God will restore his people, he says, there'll be no more traitor in the house of the Lord on that day. That was to be the sign that the messianic kingdom is coming. And these Jewish leaders who had the Old Testament should have seen that in Jesus cleansing the temple, he's giving a sign. That was supposed to be the sign. But they don't get it. They're coming to Jesus and say, what sign are you going to make? And Jesus says, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up again on the third day or three days later. The Jews thinking that he was referring to the, this physical body, physical temple, as we oftentimes think that the house of God is a physical temple. Jesus says, no, 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 no. I am not talking about, my, about this temple. 
I'm talking my own body. Now, Jesus actually did not say that. We're told that not even the disciples got that point until after the crucifixion. It was only after the crucifixion and the resurrection that actually the disciples remembered what Jesus said and said, oh my goodness, this makes sense. In that statement, Jesus was talking really about his body. Now, if, if, they, if Jesus was talking about his body, this is huge for Jesus to say, what sign are you doing? And he says, destroy this temple. He was clearly referring, or thought he was referring to the Jewish, the physical stuff. Jesus, in essence, is saying he's replacing the physical temple. Now, for, for a Jew to come and say that he's going to replace the most central part of Jewish worship, the temple was a place that facilitated our worship of God. Why? Because it was a place where sacrifices were done or slaughtered. In the Old Testament, God says very clearly that our worship to God is only made possible if something atones for our sin. Our sin makes us ineligible to come in the presence of God and worship Him. So God says, I'm going to give blood. I'm going to give it to you to be atoned for your sin. That's the only way you can worship me. The reason why the temple was huge in Old Testament worship was because it was a place of sacrifice. So for Jesus to come and say, I am replacing the temple is absolutely mind-boggling. He is replacing the temple. He is bringing a better temple. You know why? Because in that new temple is going to be offered a better sacrifice. Jesus is not only the temple, the place where the sacrifice is brought. Jesus is the sacrifice himself. And if you read the book of Hebrews, we're told that he's also the priest himself. You needed three things in order to offer a worship a sacrificial slaughter of an animal. You need a priest, you need a, a sacrifice, and you need the altar, the place itself. And in, in, in essence, Jesus is saying, I am fulfilling all three. I am the better temple. I am replacing it. Friends, what does this mean for us? What does this mean for our worship? A few implications First of all, it means that our worship of God is primarily based on the grounds that our sins have been covered by Christ. That's the only reason why we can come and worship God. Because He is the better temple. He is that temple on which the better sacrifice has taken place. He is that new, the better priest. Everything is better in Christ. That's the only reason why we can worship God. The reason why we can have confidence that He listens to our prayers is because of Christ. Now, can I speak to those, some of you who here, perhaps you're checking out Christianity. You, you don't know why should we, why should we try to, to pay attention to this God. It's because this God who is the ultimate creator, perfect in, in all his perfections, he created you and me to have his image implanted in us so that we might reflect his glory. But we have rebelled against him. And because of our rebellion against our creator, we have triggered God's righteous and eternal punishment against our sin. But God still loved us. He loved us so much, they found a way through that through His only Son, He could actually pay for our rebellion so that He could be both loving and just. And through Christ alone, our guilt has been paid for. So that those who trust in Christ as the ultimate temple, as the ultimate sacrifice, 
they too can actually be restored to God and be a part of his family and be invited to his wedding party. Friend, if, if you don't know this Jesus, if you don't know how to have a relationship with him, I would love to talk to you at the end of the service. But Christ is calling you, Christ is calling each of us to trust in him, to repent of our sin and give our lives to Christ. It is only in that way that we can actually be invited to his wedding party because he has paid the price for us. I'd love to talk to you at the end of the service if this is you this morning. But so for, for those of us who are Christians, for those of us who have made that, that act of, of faith and repentance in Christ, what does this mean for, for us? First of all, I would, would, would share with you that I want to remind you, because of Christ being the replacement of the temple, he told us where two or three are gathered in his name, he's there. The temple is there. We don't gather to church because this church, this building is a church. We gather, this building is, this gathering is a church because we gather in Jesus' name. This means that we come to church to worship God corporately. We worship him all week long, but we worship him here corporately because whenever two or three are gathered in his name, he's here with us. And we are his wedding party. And we're getting ready for that. This is all in anticipation of that. But it also means something else, dear friends. When we pray, we say we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Right? We, we give prayers in the name of Jesus. Amen. God is not telling us we just need to do some name dropping. And then that's a secret code, how he listen to our prayers. To say in the name of Jesus and the end of your prayer is not about giving that locking code to make sure that your prayer is effective. But rather, is to say, God, the only reason I can even have this prayer with you is because of Jesus. So when I say in Jesus' name, I'm saying in the name of everything that he has done for us. I have no confidence, no access to your presence except through Christ because he is our better temple. So what does the temple have to do with the party? I told you I would answer that question for you. In both instances, the party and the temple suffered a crisis. The party ran out of wine. The temple got corrupted. And instead of promoting the worship of God, it became a place of commerce. In both experiences, Jesus offers a solution. A better wine. A better temple. But in both reasons, in both situations, the solution Jesus brought was received with suspicion. In both experiences, Jesus uses traditional symbols of Jewish worship, stone jars for purification, and then a temple. And now in Christ, both of these have a different function. The water that was expected for purification is now transformed into a source of great joy and feasting. The temple that became a place of social life and commerce is put aside, pointing to the ultimate place of ultimate sacrifice, which enables the ultimate to worship of God in the person of Jesus Christ. Friends, God is addressing our need for joy and worship. Actually, by putting these together in the same text, we have a hint that our need for joy and our need for worship are not opposite extremes. Our true joy is found in our ultimate true worship. Christ is the one in whom the party gets a new life and the worship gets a new meaning. In Christ, the party meets the temple. 
because he attends both and he transforms both. Would you like to know more about this Christ? He's not here to ruin your life. He's here to call you to an eternal wedding banquet. Let's bow our heads and pray.